take two. If you're wondering, ah, Sunday Puncher Podcast, they're back. Did he forget to hit record? I did. So here we are with take two. And for this weekend, you are certainly aware that we had a huge event this weekend. We saw Canelo Alvarez become the king of the 168-pound division, the very first ever undisputed champion. He defeated Caleb Plant. And looks like by all metric in a huge, huge event, certainly it is the one time I believe, maybe the second time, where the undisputed fight got everything surrounding it. It just all like added up to saying like, oh, undisputed matters and the money shows that it does. But we'll talk about that in a little bit. I want to introduce today's co-host. Because we had such a big event, I had to go get a big name. Now, Corey, I brought on my friend Corey Erdman. I wanted to ask you first, how do you think people might know you? <laughs> you might want to ask your other co-hosts uh, that question too, because when you drafted me in the supplemental draft of uh, boxing announcers, they did not know who I was. So whatever answer I give you, I, I don't even know that it's appropriate. I don't know that you're supposed to know me at all. But if you do, you might know me from uh, various boxing telecasts. I do a lot of work for ESPN and ESPN Plus and Box Nation, uh, calling fights in, in a lot of different places. Uh, or you might know me from my writing on BoxingScene.com, where I'm uh, the lead profile writer, columnist every Monday, or maybe you're an old school fan of the Morning Jones with Bomani Jones, which I was the uh, producer and co-host of. And to this day, some people recognize me from that. So those are some ways you might recognize me, but that's not to say that you should. So if you were watching that broadcast on ESPN Plus, I believe it was uh, two years ago, and Sergey Kovalev stared glassy-eyed into the camera and talked about the lows of his career before he went on to face Anthony Yard where Sergey Kovalev was on the ropes in that fight but pulled it off and managed to get that stoppage win wasn't that you on the call uh that was I did call that fight uh, I did uh better BF Dynas I've done all of Tony Yoka's fights on ESPN um lots of I mean I've been doing this since I was 18, and I'm I'm 33 now. So there are uh, there are a lot of fights that you can go back in the archive and and find me on. But yeah, that was uh, that was one of them. And man, you start off with Bomani Jones. Bomani's off to big things. Just renegotiated his deal with ESPN. He's getting a show on HBO. I mean, geez, you sure you want to be on this podcast? Uh, well, I mean, until Bomani gives me a monster loan, I got to keep hustling, you know? So, uh, yeah, I think this is, uh, this is my only, my only method. All right. Well, let's get into things because people are here to listen to us talk about boxing. And so we had a big event this weekend. I'm sure you watched. I'm sure most of you ordered, uh, looks like all the numbers from what I can tell are going to be very impressive this weekend. But in terms of the fight, I want to ask you this question. We'll start here. Did the fight play out the way you expected it to? I, I think it did. Uh, you know, maybe it went a couple rounds longer than maybe I would have expected. But I, I think that Plant, and, and I wrote about this in my boxing scene story about the fight as well, Plant did about as well as he could have with the tools that he had. And I think that he and his training staff realized that there was a narrow path to victory for him, and it was going to be through movement 
and through frustrating Canelo with uh, an active and pesky jab. And he realized that doing anything beyond that might have been a little bit too risky and might not have uh, given him an opportunity to win the fight. You know, Canelo, you and I are both football fans, too, and I kind of liken Plant's game plan to, um, you know, when you watch a college football game, let's say, and there's a team that might not have the recruiting power, might not have the athletes that the team they're playing does, but they have a particular system and they know that if they stick to that, there could be a path to victory for them. If they don't fumble the ball, if they don't make turnovers, there is a way that they can win. It doesn't always happen, but it could win. And that's kind of what Plant was trying to do here. He felt that if he could move enough, if he could stand in there, if he could shoulder roll, block enough shots, counter a few times, and and frustrate Canelo and keep his punch output low enough that perhaps he could win that fight. And he tried it. But the problem is Canelo both has too much firepower and too many other tools to make that happen. So Plant was able to win a couple rounds, was able to make it interesting, especially in the early going, the first four to six rounds he was in there. But then ultimately he got outgunned. And I thought that that moment where it became evident that he was totally outgunned might have happened a little bit sooner in that fight. But I think it did play out the way that ultimately I anticipated it did, but kind of drew out a little bit longer than maybe I would have thought. You know, I think in terms of the fight meeting my expectations, like in terms of competitiveness, in terms of entertainment and the result, I'll say one, first of all, entertainment. This exceeded my expectations for entertainment. Sure. I thought that it was a tense. It it was like, it was a cagey fight, but not necessarily. It was more cagey in like the Deontay Wilder sense where it's like not a ton is happening, but the suspension is there where something big is going to happen at some point. You know it. So it over delivered there. The result was exactly what I thought it was going to be. And in fact, in watching the fight, I think like you, I, I I would say the fight played out exactly how I thought it was. I actually thought Caleb would win rounds. I thought the fight would go as long as it did. But what I think added to the entertainment value of this fight is that it got me. It had me suspending my belief because Caleb was doing things that I did not expect him to do. He added some things in where I was like, okay, that's actually more effective than I thought it was going to be. And there were times where Canelo looked visibly frustrated in the fight. We have not seen Canelo look like that in a while. Now, don't get that twisted, guys. I'm not saying Canelo looked troubled. I'm not saying Canelo looked like he was in danger. He looked frustrated. He looked like a guy that's like, I'm used to doing what I want to do in fights, and I'm not able to execute what I want to do. I mean, he called for, what, an eighth or seventh round knockout? Wasn't able to do that. Took him a little longer. But I, I thought... It was a very tactical fight, and it was entertaining to watch. I mean, it was really entertaining to just watch that these two guys are really skilled. Now, oh, go on. It looks like you're about to get ready to say something. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was going to say, like, it's it's interesting. I Like, I don't know that I sensed frustration from Canelo, like, at least not in, like, a like an explicit sense, because this is kind of – Canelo is very patient, right? Like, he's not – and and Morgan Campbell said this in, in his recap in, in the New York Times, like Canelo isn't necessarily a slow starter as he is a, so much as he is a patient fighter. And I, I think probably what you're referring to is that Canelo 
he had to reset a lot because the plant is going to, he's going to twist and turn and he's going to, he's going to force Canelo to throw maybe a little bit less than, than he otherwise would. I, I could definitely see that, but I, I, I felt, especially after the sixth round and there was, there was a sequence at the end of the sixth where Canelo dodged like 20 consecutive jabs. And I think at that point he sort of knew that he would eventually get to, to Caleb and it, it didn't happen quite as soon as he thought that it would. And uh, to your point, he he thought that he'd score a KO before the eighth, but he eventually got there. But I think after the sixth, he realized that, all right, well, I know this guy can't hit me with the one weapon that he really is willing to use in this fight. So at a certain point, I'm going to be able to, to stop this fight. But yeah, I, I do think that because Canelo is that patient and he isn't at, at 168, like a super high output guy he allows and we saw this in the Kovalev fight too guys can kind of hang around long enough where you're like oh you know if this goes to the scorecards will a judge see this in a way that this gets interesting and yeah so I think there was a degree of suspense as well that just by virtue of hanging around and doing a little better than maybe we would have thought that, yeah, there, there's a little bit of suspense there, and you are starting to say, oh, okay, if this goes to the scorecards, is it possible that something wacky happens? So one thing that I would like to give Caleb Plant credit for is it is really clear that he studied the Mayweather fight. Yep. And he implemented a lot of what Floyd did. Now, the question about that, though, is why was Floyd successful with it and Caleb wasn't? The easy answer is that Floyd Mayweather is going down as one of the greatest fighters to ever live. And Caleb Plant's going to be remembered probably, you know, based off of what we've seen thus far in his career and on Saturday night. I think it's fair to say Caleb's going to go down as one of the good fighters of this era. Not necessarily going to be remembered, though, outside of any conversation that revolves around the late what do we call it? the late teens to the early OOs era of super middleweight? Sure. And that's about it. Unless he goes on to exceed my expectations, but I doubt it. Uh, you know, maybe like a Mikael Kessler. We're like, we ain't bringing up his name too often in conversation unless we talk about early teens super middleweight. Uh, but why was Caleb not able to be successful at what Floyd did, even though to an extent he did have success? It's just he didn't win the fight. How did he do the things that Floyd did but really not take over the fight at any point. Do you well, have an answer? I, I, yeah, I, I, it's because Floyd is is a lot better at all the things that that Caleb Plant tried to do. And again, that's not that's not a knock on on Caleb Plant. I think in more explicitly, the one thing that Floyd was able to do is he was able to lead and land mm-hmm. on Canelo, and not just counter, but he was able to land his jab, but also counter him with right hands. And Caleb really didn't offer his right hand all that often in this fight and when you don't threaten Canelo with any kind of power shots and again going back to the one thing he was trying to win rounds with was his jab once that gets neutralized you you really don't have any deterrent for Canelo to worry about and Floyd did you know he was he was beating Canelo to the punch but was then also able to catch and shoot and again, I'll give Caleb Plant a lot of credit, too, because by using that style, by using the shoulder roll, you are kind of 
uh, you're conceding that you're going to allow your opponent to throw and hit you somewhere on your body because that's kind of what the shoulder roll is all about. Like you, you might lead, you might counter, but ultimately you're going to let guys hit you on the elbows because you're going to try and scoop some uppercuts. You're you're going to try and you know catch and and, and throw right hands. And that's that takes a degree of bravery to say, all right, I'm going to let Canelo get near me and I'm going to let him touch me so that I can try and counter. So he I also give, fought in the pocket a lot, too. Exactly. He fights in the pocket. So I give I give Plant a lot of credit for for standing in there and doing that. But again, you need to have kind of generational instincts, generational timing, generational hand speed in order to make that work. And, and Floyd has that. And and Plant has you know very good versions of that he's not not floyd mayweather that's the difference i mean it well one a couple of things one it shows that part of the game plan that floyd had it still works now granted floyd showed that that game plan worked against everybody but caleb had a high degree of success in this fight far more than anybody else had by being slick and that is something that people attributed to billy joe saunders is a potential reason why he'd have success against Canelo. And ultimately, it wasn't any of that that Billy Joe Saunders brought to the table that was successful in that fight. But the other thing is, and I don't know if I'm going to put you on the spot here, but um, I thought that there's a lot of credit that needs to be given to Caleb Plant's trainer, whose name I don't remember. But Justin Gamber? Yeah, Justin Gamber. I think he deserves credit here. I think mm-hmm. he... he they prepared really well for this fight and they executed really well. But here's where I have an issue with, I don't know if it's Caleb Plant. I don't know if it's with um, Justin Gamber. I don't know if it's with uh, you. I don't know. Um, Caleb, the mechanics of Caleb Plant seem kind of weird to me. Um, he did throw the right hand, as you mentioned. Didn't throw it much, but he did, when he did throw it, it always felt like it just wasn't a punch that was meant to hurt. The jab had a little bit of pop on it, no doubt about it. But all the other punches that Caleb Plant throws just didn't seem like they were thrown with any conviction to be a deterrent to Canelo to not walk forward. And I think that that's like a fundamental issue that Caleb Plant might have where, you know, we kind of generally see him as a a non-puncher at 168. And I feel like that's the issue is that Caleb just isn't really sitting down on his punches, not putting much leverage behind the shots. And like that could have made a huge difference. If Caleb Plant could have actually put, you know, and then, you know, this gets us into a tricky situation where it's like, well, if you do this, you have to subtract somewhere else. Maybe, I don't know. But if we could have had something on the right hand and offered something up there, I mean, is it possible that then we look at a 12 round fight where like now we start to open up the possibilities for what this fight could have been. But I think that that was one of the major issues in terms of Caleb really having sustained success in this fight yeah well and i guess and and that is the question like it's the choice to to throw with more power does come at the expense of some things and and when you're talking about canelo alvarez who's one of the best counter punchers in the sport and a very dangerous puncher by throwing harder you're kind of hanging around a little bit longer. You're you're creating more opportunities for him to counter you. And going back to what I said off the top, I do I think the game plan, which I think was a good one for for the skill set that Caleb had, was to try to to move and kind of peck your way to a decision. And that I think was his best chance. I we've never we've never seen Plant demonstrate that he could be that kind of sit down on on your power shots puncher guy. 
And so why would he bring that into this fight uh, against the most dangerous and best fighter that that he's ever faced before? You know, that would just be kind of a fundamental realignment of how he approaches fights. And I just don't think that that would be reasonable. So uh, it's possible. Sure. Could he throw in the, the right hand with more conviction? It may be. But also, I don't think maybe he's physically he wanted- able to. But but even if he was, maybe you do that and your right hand's not at home and you get caught with one of those left hooks a little bit longer. You yeah. know, like by by keeping himself kind of bladed most of the time in that shoulder roll, he did actually make it difficult for Canelo to hit him flush with that hook. Now, he eventually got caught with it in in the 11th round and, and certainly it landed before, but not in a way that, that wobbled him. It made it, it forced Canelo to make adjustments to land his left hook, which meant Canelo had to loop the shot or he had to make another maneuver to try and get Plant out of position and land it. Ultimately, he did find it, but yeah, if he throws that right hand a little bit more or with more conviction, maybe he gets caught a little bit sooner. And then maybe that game plan of him kind of pecking his way to a decision uh, doesn't happen. So I, I don't know. Like, I, I see what you're saying, but I it's it's I think that with the skill set that Caleb had, this what he did was probably his best path to victory, it just wasn't going to work out. You know, I mean, I'm doing the Monday morning quarterback with a what if, what if, you know, but like one thing that I think you can say, at least I don't know if you're going to agree with this, but what actually transpired was that, and I believe this is probably why it took Canelo so long, but Caleb took away his counterpunch, or not counterpunching, obviously that's never going anywhere, but he took away his combination punching. Yes, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think Kovalev was able to do that a bit, but like Kovalev fell apart in that fight in devastating fashion. Uh, But like in this fight, I think the one of the major reasons for success is that Caleb Plant did the things that he needed to do to take away combination punching. And but the moment when Canelo was able to um, unleash a combination in that eleventh round, fight was over. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and the risk that you run um, in doing the things that Caleb did, and by that I mean you're being willing to kind of catch Canelo's shots on your arms, is that you still get broken down. Like, even if those aren't landing, mm-hmm. and 40% of Canelo's power shots did land, so it's not like, you know, it's not like he totally neutralized Canelo or, or anything like that, but he reduced the amount of punches that he was able to throw. Um, as you described it, he took away his combination punching, but when you're getting caught on the arms repeatedly, like that's ultimately going to break you down too. We saw it in, in more, um, you know, optically dramatic fashion with, with Callum Smith, with the bruising on his arm, you saw the effect that that could have. And, and Canelo is, is not above using that as a tactic. He will just hit you anywhere and, and ultimately it'll break you down. And I think that had an effect too, you know, like just getting banged on the arms all the time. Uh, is ultimately going to have an effect later on in the fight. And I think that that could have played a role later on in in kind of fatiguing Plant a little bit and, and, and taking away his ability to, to react. Um, but also, sometimes with a fighter that is as skilled and, and precise as Canelo, sometimes you just ultimately get caught. When you give Canelo 12 rounds to try and catch you, more often than not, he is going to. Right. Well... You mentioned the sixth round as a, a, a significant point of the fight. Mm-hmm. I would like to point you to what I believe is the most significant part of the fight. It was the turning point. It was the beginning of the end. I believe it was the 10th round. Caleb Plant comes out, starts with the combination. 
throws another combination. He lands a couple of combinations over the course of that round. That was the end. Caleb Plant had his his whole strategy up to this point was throw one or two punches at a time and move. And it worked well. When he did that, he opened himself up. One, why didn't it work? Well, he's now exerting way more energy. Caleb Plant, not known for having the best gas tank uh, historically. We're, We're now... Wasting punches because those punches were doing nothing. They they were I, I don't know why he threw them. I, I think I I don't know. I, I really think that if he looked back, he'd probably say, like, okay, why am I throwing those punches? One, there's not much on them. Two, they're not effective. Three, I didn't need to throw them because at that point, what he was do- doing was working as well as it could have with the, the deck th- or the hand that he was dealt. Yeah, there was a moment at the end of the ninth round, um, where he throws a, a little kind of like shoe shine sort of pity pad combination, mm-hmm. and there's a right hand that lands. And Canelo sort of rolls his eyes and exhales like he's he's disappointed that he allowed himself <laughs> to have that land on him. Right. And Plant walks back to his corner with his arms in the air. And that I think like in the, that that's kind of what we're talking about here. And it's it's Plant achieving a little bit more than maybe we thought and maybe in that moment achieving a like doing a little bit better than maybe he thought and and kind of getting credit for that for doing a little bit better than than what we thought and i think in that that's kind of the best moment that he had in this fight combination punching wise and after that that's kind of when things started to really unravel for him the 10th wasn't a great round for him and then the 11th ultimately it ends but yeah that that was kind of that sort of encapsulates everything about this fight. Like it was that, that moral victory for him is that he landed a three punch combination and it just sort of annoyed Canelo. And then two rounds later, this fight's over. I mean, yeah. One, yes, Caleb can hit Canelo. We, we established that Two, He was crafty with hitting Canelo. No doubt about it. But three, ain't much on it. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. And that's kind of what we, that's what we found out in that moment. And, and it's sort of, it seemed to irritate Canelo enough to to get him to hit hit another gear, so to speak. Although, you know, like it's it's interesting because Canelo in the first round and Canelo in the eleventh round doesn't look a whole lot different. Mm-hmm. But he's he's figuring things out. It's not like he you know starts upping his punch count or anything like that in the eleventh round. It's it's the same tempo, but you know he's he's in, he's invigorated to find the answer, which he found in the eleventh. You know, one thing for me about Canelo, I've I've always, you know, do you remember when Canelo first came over uh, to Golden Boy? Do you yeah, remember oh, yeah. the general like boxing fan consensus about him? Yeah, yeah. Can, can was... you remind our uh, our faithful listeners? Yeah, well, I mean, Canelo at that point was kind of regarded as sort of like a, a cherry picking hype job, right? Mm-hmm. As a guy who mm-hmm. was who was picking on smaller fighters. Um, I remember. His reputation at that point was as a guy who thought he was a slicker boxer than he was, which I find fascinating because now he genuinely did blossom in, into a, a really, really good defensive fighter uh, and, and one of the best tacticians in the sport and, and a, a fully well-rounded fighter. But yeah, at that time, he was seen as, as a guy who was sort of a, a construct of the boxing industry uh, of of Golden Boy and as a guy who was 
uh, not quite as good as maybe he thought he was. And, you know, uh, on many fronts, everyone was wrong because he was indeed everything that he thought he was or, or turned out to be uh, by 2021. I might be a little bit of a contrarian. I probably am. But like, I remember back then, like feeling myself give in to the hive mind of who Canelo was, which is like, oh, they're protecting him. Golden Boy is just trying to create another cash cow and all this stuff. And that's certainly everything you said was true. But when I had watched the fights, I did not agree with that. Like just what I was seeing did not line up with that. I always thought I was like, this guy's good. Now, I didn't I never thought that he was going to turn into you didn't say it, um, but I'll say it. He is a very slick fighter and he does it in a way that isn't your traditional Arizona Lara sort of Guillermo Rigondeau type of slickness where it's it comes with the territory of not being entertaining, but it's more of the type of um, I don't know why I just got a notification from you saying that you're on now on Discord. There we go. Hey, everyone. (laughs) Um, But like he's developed into an entertaining slick fighter where he could move forward and fight in the pocket, similar to the way Floyd could. And he can still be untouchable at times. Yeah. And, um, but I remember one of my first real things I noticed about Canelo, I was like, this guy is an incredible counter punch or not counter puncher, combination puncher. And I can't. I, I remember saying this a long time ago. Th- this guy has Juan Manuel Marquez in him. The way he puts punches together, there is no one as creative as Marquez, and he is like Marquez when it comes to putting punches together. And then the other thing that I noticed is that he got better with every fight. And like, if you watch him in the in the Trout fight, and then watch him afterwards you could see the things that he stole from that trout fight and added to his game plan. And that's what I feel like about Canelo is he's taking a little bit from every single one of his fights, implementing something that he learned, and he's now developed into this fantastic fighter that to me, and I'm curious because you've called more cruiserweight fights and seen more cruiserweight fights probably than anybody that I know. (laughs) Except one guy, maybe. And Bridgerweight fights, by the way. And Bridger, I, I don't know if I want to throw them into this, but I think that if Canelo fought anybody at 200 pounds or below, he is the favorite over everybody. Yeah, whoa. I'd see, I hadn't thought about it in terms of like what he could do at Cruiserweight because some of the, those guys are big. But I, I want to go back to, to, to what you're talking about with, with his style because mm-hmm. he's... It's I find him so interesting because, yeah, one thing is that he can move forward and be that slick. And so no matter what kind of boxing you are drawn to aesthetically, I think Canelo kind of satisfies that for you. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that is, is also why he's <clears throat> as popular as he is. It's not just because he kind of has – it's not just because of nationalism or his success or anything like that. But I think that no matter what you look for in a fighter – Canelo can supply that for you. So mm-hmm. you like a guy that marches forward and puts pressure on 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 his opponent, he does that. If you like a, a crafty counterpuncher, he does that. Uh, you like a guy that can score highlight reel knockouts, he can do that. Good, like uh, interesting uh, combinations and creative offensive fighters, he satisfies that as well. And to your point, we think about slickness in, in generally in only one terms, and that's the guy who's boxing off the back foot. Uh, and and making you miss, but to be able to do that moving forward, I think takes a, a special 
kind of skill and to be able to do it moving forward, not just in like, I'll stand in the pocket with you, but I'll walk you down and make you miss at the same time. That's like, that's what makes Canelo so interesting. And that's why, and and I haven't thought about it long enough to give you like a, a concrete answer about, you know, who he would beat at, at cruiserweight, but that level of skill and that ability to make guys miss is what makes that not an open and shut case. The fact that yeah, if if you if you can make guys miss, you can climb the the ladder weight wise a lot higher than than guys who can't, and that's what is making this so interesting. Like, do I favor him over every soup every light heavyweight? Yeah, like I, I would pick him over everyone at one seventy five. Cruiserweight? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. Maybe size catches up to him, but I, I'm not like I'm not gonna bet against him. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't thought about it before right now, but that speaks to, to to his his unique set of skills. The fact that I can't tell you no, he wouldn't beat the, the cruiserweight champions right now. Uh, that's how special he is. I I mean, his so I don't think anybody at cruiserweight has anything close to his skills. So what we're thinking about now is like, well, could anybody catch him clean? And I don't think anybody could catch him clean at cruiserweight. Right. Yeah. And 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 I guess the other question is like, if someone happens to, you know, can can he take a punch from a cruiserweight? I, I guess you know that's one of the the main questions that we're talking about. But yeah, I mean, like, it's I mean, it's wild that we're thinking about like Canelo versus like Maris Bradis. Or like Lawrence Acoli or or, or Dorticos as as potential as like where we have to go to maybe find someone that could hang with Canelo. That uh, you know, going back to those early days, like watching Canelo Matthew Hatton, you couldn't have. Pot- <laughs> I mean, how could you predict that we'd be in in this place? Okay, well that uh, one wasn't a good fight to pick, <laughs> right? You know, or whatever. You know, like that's. Uh, but it's it's fascinating that we've that we've reached these heights with Canelo, and it's. But it's also cool that because this really is what because remember the first time that like mainstream audiences saw Canelo is it was during an episode of 24 seven. And all of a sudden you see this like redheaded fellow who they they slide in there as the possible heir apparent to Floyd. And this is way before him fighting Floyd was even an idea. And for that to actually come true and not just as like a a construct of the boxing industry that aided him getting here, but genuinely that he became the best fighter on the planet. Uh, it, it's it's neat that it actually turned it's the, the the script actually was followed through on, you know, like mm-hmm. it, it turned out the way that uh, someone wanted it to turn out. Right. Well, I mean, obviously there was a ton of people that specifically with that golden boy team that saw, I, and I, and I think, you know, it extended out. I'm sure Floyd saw it. I'm sure Heyman saw it. I think a lot of people involved, HBO certainly saw it, and Showtime eventually came on board and said, yeah, we absolutely see this. And with all the expectations that were put in front of him, he's exceeded them. Yeah, and and, and it's it's hard in boxing to, to you know, because we're told that everyone is going to be the next star, right? When anyone, it, when you get the press release from Not anyone me, but signing... <laughs> but... <laughs> when, when anyone signs with anyone, a press conference or, or a, a, a press release comes out and says, yeah, this is the future world champion. This is the next big thing in boxing. And so we're told that everyone is going to be the next Floyd. And 
or the next big star and it rarely happens right it, it never happens but this this time it actually has like we've been waiting for the person to kind of take that mantle i'm not saying that like canelo is his career accomplishments are necessarily on on par with floyd but he is our generation's best fighter right now you know, right in that generation after floyd and manny this is canelo's generation and for a while, it looked like maybe there wouldn't really be one person that would rise above the pack in the way that Floyd and Manny did. But but we have it. And it's, it's you know, every generation has its kind of like, you know, generational marker of a fighter. And Canelo will be that for us. Well, before we talk about all the Golovkin fans who are not happy with the whole conversation that's happening right now. Let's talk a little bit about Caleb Plant and like, where does he go from here? Because obviously... Um, I don't know that this was like a terrible loss where I'm I'm now writing him off. I think uh, he, he fought well, he gave a good account of himself. And then obviously whenever there's a stoppage, you kind of look at like, okay, well, what did this take out of him? And I think for the most part, for both guys, this was a pretty low contact fight where I don't think the rounds were that hard. Um, the stoppage, obviously the shots, the couple of shots that he got hit with at the end, not so good. But um, first of all, just from what you saw from Caleb Plant, I mean, where does he cement himself in the hierarchy of super middleweight, according to Corey Erdman? Yeah, I, I mean, I think he's still one of the best super middleweights in the world, right? Like, I, 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 the difficulty is that when you lose to the best, when you lose on the on the on the biggest stage, it, part of boxing marketing is just having this this sense that someone could be the next one like we were just mm -hmm. talking about with canelo and and it there's always that like well what if what if he could be the very best in the world and once you've proven that you aren't it's it's hard to kind of to sell people mm -hmm. again right like we saw that and, and it's unfair because what you're doing is like you're you're judging someone on losing to the to the best in the world. Like after he got knocked out by Floyd, suddenly Ricky Hatton becomes this like punchline, right? Uh, and same thing with with after the the Pacquiao loss. Or look at any one of the opponents of Pacquiao and Mayweather and how they're talked about after those fights. Even though they're losing to the best fighter in the world, it just changes things. You're almost better off losing to anyone else. Because you don't definitively know that they couldn't beat the guy who's the very best. And that's the difficulty in marketing Caleb Plant moving forward. But I think the good thing, and, and this is this is one thing that PBC should be commended for, is that they don't give up on fighters when they lose. And not just when they lose to, uh, you know, to Canelo Alvarez or a Floyd, but to anybody. Uh, that They don't just cut people just because they lost once, that they're still – a utility in being one of the five best super middleweights in the world, maybe the second best super middleweight in the world. Why would you just dump a fighter just because they lost to the, the very best fighter period on the planet? Mm -hmm. So they will find great fights for him moving forward. But in the public eye, like it is difficult once they've seen you at the highest level and you come up short, you know, that kind of like, that dream, that suspension of disbelief that, hey, may maybe this is the next guy. I mean, that's gone for Caleb Plant, but that doesn't mean that there aren't interesting fights or, you know, worthwhile achievements for him to be gunning for in his career. Um, This kind of like makes me think about the fascination fans have 
And I don't know if this is one of the things where it comes down from the top and maybe it sort of starts with promoters and then it seeps through or it's just a fan thing. But like I've noticed and started to put into words because before I just knew that it was a phenomenon that exists, but never really like talked about it. But it feels like boxing fans have this fascination, this obsession with just wanting fighters to lose. And anytime that there's somebody who sits atop the mountain, the conversation around that fighter tends to be about who can knock him off. And so one of the things that I remember having a conversation about a lot when it came to Floyd was always, well, who could beat him? And after Floyd, you know, he's like, okay, well, Canelo is this young kid coming up and he looks pretty great. And he looks like he could be a big star. And it's like, and he's bigger than Floyd. And it's like, okay, could he beat Floyd? And it's like, well, no. And after that, it's like, well, who's next? There's still Manny out there. And I feel like because that exists, that way of thinking exists, when you become the person where it's evident that you are not that guy, now we have an issue. Because right. now it's like, well, you're not that guy. So, you know, we shouldn't have to pay attention to you because you're not the guy who could beat the guy. Yeah, and they I, feel like disappointed by them that they like let them down by not beating the guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's – well, and, and I think a part of that is the construct of, of, of boxing as a sport because it's not like – people don't really feel that way about team sports, for example, because it's not, it's not, a, a, it's not a marketing ploy in the same way. Right. Like boxing is a sport, but it's also someone it's promoters and managers telling you this is going to be the next guy. They're hyping people up. And so boxing fans always feel like they're they're suspicious. They feel like they're being lied to, whether whether it's about the person who's going to knock that top fighter off or the top fighter themselves. The people are like, oh, well, they, they don't actually deserve to be there. This is some sort of like scheme. And we're being lied to about their actual talent. They're not as good is what they tell us to. That seems to be kind of like the, the prevailing attitude in in boxing is like, you know, we've all been conned and we're looking for someone because people love to use that word exposed, right? Yeah. Because we're always being told that like this person is great and, and we don't know. Oh my God, know Caleb Plant got exposed. He got exposed. By or the like, best fighter on the planet. By the best fighter on the planet, right? <laughs> like that, that's always the attitude. It's like there's someone's trying to get something over on us and we're happy when you know they lose because we're proven we were the the, the we're the, the the truth tellers right i knew all along that this guy was a fraud and he lost and that that proved me right right and I, most people just kind of take that as like a blanket opinion about everyone like whether it, mm-hmm. every single fighter is a fraud in some way <laughs> uh, as if guys can't just like lose and that's that's okay but yeah that's the, and i think it does come down to the fact that like Boxing is this industry where you are being, you know, you're being sold something. You're being sold a, a bill of goods in, in this case, mm-hmm. or an entity in a fighter, um, in a way that you you aren't really with other team sports. Uh, no, I think that's a really good point. I think, you know, this is all promotion, but it is kind of funny. It's like we accept. I don't know about you, actually. I'm I'm not going to speak for you, but I accept that. They are trying to pull the old okie doke on me with everything in boxing. It's all selling. And it's like wrestling where it's like, it's all a work. And I don't like, we don't know if anybody's good, really. Like, and anybody could lose, but you got to make events and you got to get people to care. And, you know, maybe one triggers the other, but like, I'm not sitting out here to like, wait to see like, ah, yep. Told you so better be of ain't that guy. 
It's like, no, um, I'm just fine with what we get. But I, the, I just noticed like the fascination of like how quick the conversation was like after Andre Ward won the super six, well, who could beat him? I, I don't know when Kovalev comes around or, you know, for a while it was Golovkin. Could Golovkin beat Andre Ward? I don't know. But then he fights Sergey Kovalev. And after he beats Kovalev, the first question my dad asked me is, well, who could beat Andre Ward now? Right. <laughs> right. Well, apparently or, nobody. Or like, yeah. Or like, you know, Kovalev by losing must've been like fraudulent in, in that moment in, in, in some capacity. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's it, yeah. There is always this fascination uh, or this obsession that like what we're seeing isn't real, right? That it, like as you pointed out, like oh, like you know, is is better be ever really this good? Well, yeah, bro, yeah. I mean, he's beaten everybody. Like, and even if he loses his next fight, does that mean that everything that he accomplished prior to that was like some sort of mirage? Like, of course, there are examples of fighters that are carefully matched. And, and you know, that's just how this business works, um, right or wrong. I mean, that that is kind of the construct of the sport. But once you get to a certain level and you've won a handful of world title fights, like what you did wasn't fake. Right. There might be someone out there that can beat you or will ultimately beat you. But that doesn't you know, that doesn't mean that what you did in the past, like you weren't being lied to the whole time. And also these guys are fighters. They genuinely do believe that they could beat up everyone in, on earth. Like right. that's what, you know, not only do they have to tell you that to sell a fight, but they genuinely do fucking believe it. You know, like that's, 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 that's how they're built. Right. I mean, it's like a guy like Elvis Rodriguez was like, okay, first he was prospect of the year. He he lost one fight to a fighter who was, I think that was a scheduled loss. If you look at where they gave him a fighter like Kenneth Sims at the point of the progression of his career. But then you look at other stuff that happened out of the ring. I think Elvis Rodriguez had had COVID. And then he goes from that to losing, to being cut. And then he comes back, scores a spectacular knockout on the undercard against an opponent that, I don't know if I was speaking to you. I might have been speaking to somebody else, but they were like, no, nah, I like this guy. He's actually got some amateur experience. He can box a bit. Um, but he knocks this guy out and it's like, wait, so, I mean, I know he lost to Kenneth Sims. So like, what do we think about him? Like, is he a prospect worth keeping an eye on? Do we go with what we thought after he lost to Kenneth Sims that he just got one punch and that's it? Or, or what, where are we at with him? Yeah. I, I mean, in, in that case, like some promoters are just more willing to rehabilitate a fighter than others. Right. And, and I guess, you know, top rank decided that they weren't interested for whatever reason. And, and maybe there were like personal issues with them too. Like, I, I don't know what happened with, with his release or why they, they opted to do it. But from what we understand, they had a prospect who took a loss and they said, okay, well, maybe he wasn't as good as we thought. We're not willing to invest any additional time into him. And right now, I mean, the top rank business model is that they have, you know, all of their TV dates are paid for. Every event that they put on is already financed by ESPN. They don't really have to be in the business of trying to rehabilitate anyone. They can just worry about the people who are undefeated and try and kind of make the next star. And when you lose, they, they get rid of you. So they don't have to do that. But yeah, I mean, like at this point, like Elvis comes back and he scores a, a great knockout on probably the biggest pay-per-view of the year. Of course, there was more you know, there was more to be extracted from him. There's still upside in his career and someone's willing to put the time into, to, to let that actualize, but top rank just wasn't, you know, and, and they have the reasons for that, I guess. 
Wait, so you're not going to give us a scoop on why they cut him? I have no idea why they cut him. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't have sources like that. And if I did, I couldn't I couldn't share them. All right. Well, you guys can DM me for the reason. Um, of course, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, so did your opinion of who Caleb Plant could and couldn't beat in terms of the landscape at 168, did it change after Saturday night? I don't think so. I, I think that I, I always felt that Canelo was ultimately going to be kind of the, the cream of the crop here at, at 168 mm-hmm. and that Caleb Plant is going to – he's capable of having great fights with everyone and, and maybe capable of beating everyone that isn't Canelo at 168. And there's going to come a time when Canelo leaves 168 and maybe Caleb Plant becomes the guy – that rules this division once once Canelo leaves. And that's totally cool too. And maybe there's a world where Caleb Plant improves as a fighter moving forward. And there's a right, like who knows? You know, he's he's what, 22 fights into his pro career. There's there's a there's a world in which Caleb Plant is able to improve and become a, a much better fighter down the road. Um, but no, I, I think that he turned in the best performance he could against Canelo and I think he's situated exactly you know where I anticipated uh, amongst all of the best ones 168 pounders but not better than Canelo Alvarez and that uh, no one's better than Canelo Alvarez right now so he's right in there with everyone else in the sport yeah I think to me the only I would say the only opinion that I have about Caleb Plant that's changed. I, I mean, I, I've always felt that he had a really good shot against Benavidez. I think the problems that he caused for Canelo at points in the fight would, you know, David Benavidez is not as good as Canelo. And I don't think that's like a slight on Benavidez. It's just like, you know, until they fight, I believe that Benavidez is not in the same tier that Canelo is. And I think that those would be major problems in a Benavidez fight. Uh, the one guy who I think is... Um, I don't know how I'd feel about that fight is if he fought Jamal Charlo. I think Jamal's jab would <clears throat> kind of offset what Caleb brings with the jab. But at the same time, I think with Caleb's movement, I think I might give him more of a shot at, at well, if we, you know, where does t- the scale lean to? Does it lean to Caleb Plant or Jamal Charlo? I think it's tipped a little more to Caleb Plant after this weekend. Interesting, but but I, I would I would assume that if that fight were made, that Charlo would be the betting favorite. Like, would you consider Charlo the favorite in that fight, or are you saying you just you think that Plant has more of a shot in that fight than you previously thought? See, I was trying to be coy for a reason there, so I didn't have to answer a question like this. Okay, all right. But I would say that <clears throat> Charlo's probably the betting favorite if we both understand how betting lines work, which yeah, is that of course. They're a combination of who you actually think is going to win and public sentiment to entice betting. And so I think Jamal Charlo would be a really slight betting favorite, but that line would be razor close. And also, I think that the fight between Canelo and Jamal Charlo would happen before Caleb Plant would have a shot at facing Jamal Charlo, which could definitely change things as well, depending on how that fight goes. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think Plant Charlo is a I mean that's a that's a terrific fight. And the other thing I'll say about Plant, which um, I hadn't really thought about before now, 
Uh, number one, good good choice of rappers by having uh, Conway the Machine <laughs> rap him out. I appreciate that. Uh, but also, I, Plant didn't seem overwhelmed by the moment. And and I know that people have, you know, feelings about, like, you know, Caleb and, and sort of his attitude and he might rub people the wrong way or, or for whatever reason. But he – for probably those same reasons, he seemed to really believe that he belonged on this stage and he at no point during fight week or during the fight did he seem out of place. Mm-hmm. He, and, and I don't know how to really, like, quantify that, but he looked like a fighter who felt – like he belonged there and like he had a chance of winning in this fight. And you don't – sometimes you just get a feeling that, that guys don't feel that way. But I, I never once got that sense about Caleb Plant and you know that, that, that counts for something. Uh, that he, he truly believes that he belongs on this kind of echelon. Time to drag the podcast down a little bit. But um, I think Caleb is like kind of dead inside. <laughs> okay what, what do you mean by that <laughs> no i don't mean that like you know i i mean this in a very like kind of sad way but i think caleb carries with him a level of sadness that most of us don't have to endure mm-hmm. and he's obviously suffered the tragedies that he's had in his life with his daughter and his mom i i think that that guy is just like the the stuff that he's seen the stuff that he's had to deal with like this is nowhere on that level and i don't think that he's gotten over any of that stuff i i feel like that's one of those things where it's like every time i close my eyes i see it um i'm I'm sure his life isn't just like pure misery i'm not saying that by any stretch but i think that when you've seen the things once when you see certain things in your life you become a different person and i think that in terms of being starstruck being like shook by the stage that you're on i don't see that for a guy like caleb plant because i don't think he's I don't think the feelings that you you would have to have in order to be caught up in the moment, I don't think that he would even concern himself with those feelings. They would not, they just wouldn't occur for him the way they would for maybe you or me. If like, I don't know, let's say um, one of one of the guys that we both look up to, Joe Tessitore came up on this, just kidding. But like if, if Bomani Jones came on this podcast, we may, maybe you act a little differently, but I certainly would feel a different way given his position as like this prominent ESPN and HBO broadcaster slash commentator, you know, you know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. No, well, and, and yeah, I, I think that is a good point of, about plan. And I think that the same could be said for a lot, a lot of fighters. Now, Caleb's, you know, what he's endured in his life, you know, he's, he's endured some really horrible tragedies. And I think that's not to say that every fighter comes, is born of tremendous tragedy or pain in their life, but I, I I don't know if most, but a lot of fighters uh, have found themselves in a boxing gym because of some fairly harsh circumstances in their lives. And I, I think that that does condition you in a way that, you know, even being on this stage, any stage where you're getting paid to do this feels like a, a, a victory. So, yeah, I, I think that Because I I always hate when people say, you know, oh, so-and-so is like ducking someone or, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, they're afraid. He fears someone. And I'm like, if you've made it to the point where you're like 20 and 0 as a professional fighter and you're fighting for a world title, like, trust me, these guys don't fear anything. No, they're psychopaths. 
they're psychopaths, right? Like, and that, like, that is born not only of like the the belief that you know you can knock out any man within your weight neighborhood uh, on the planet, but in in a lot of cases from the hardships that drew you to the boxing gym in the first place, like. Whatever you put in front of me, I can endure that. And yeah, and there is a lot of that, I think, in, in, in Caleb Plant and, and with a lot of fighters too. And that's why I always kind of reject that idea when people like to um, to use words like that about like, you know, ducking or fear or quitting or like those kinds of things. Like those to me just don't apply to fighters on this level. It's just not – It's that's not something that those, that those people feel. I, I don't think they're capable of it. Yeah, I, and I think like Deontay Wilder is one of those guys where it's like, you should not be here. Like if you think about it, like you're operating at the highest level of a sport off of what? Like sure, you have insane power, but like at, on some level at the top level, your power should easily be neutralized by anybody who's a competent defender. Um, it, it's like if you get a guy who's like, yeah, he if he hits a baseball, he'll hit it 600 feet. All he's got to do is hit it and then throw him up against professional pitching. He's not touching the ball because at some point your power just does not work against like the elite level operators for whatever reason. This dude has this level of belief in himself, a nerve, whatever you want to call it, that he's able to um, really execute at that level. But with Caleb Plant, I mean, I, I just want to make sure that nobody takes this the wrong way. I mean, Caleb Plant is a guy that he's gotten, he's gone to a really dark place, or n- not dark, maybe an internal place with things that, I mean, I, I don't think that he really just functions the same way you or I do who have not experienced the level of trauma that he has in his life. Yeah, and, and that's... Uh, I, I, I think you're right about... And he often references that too, you know, when, when people, especially in the buildup to this fight, you know, people are asking, you know, like, well, what do you think about this stage? And he's like, well, you know, considering the things that I've seen in my life, like I'm not, I'm not afraid of anything. And well, he's also not happy to be on the stage is what it is. He's like, he's not like, oh, I've overcome all this stuff. You know, I, I'm just amazed that I've made it. No, he's not even like, it's like, he doesn't care that he got to this point. Yeah, that, that's I, I've never heard that kind of uh, like that evaluation of, of plant like that. But yeah, I can I, I can I can see how you're seeing that in him. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Court, oh, you that sounded like a really respectful disagreement. No, 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 no. I, I, I hadn't considered, uh, you know, the emotion that plant is carrying around and how that might uh, how it might materialize in either improving him as a fighter or how he behaves on, on that kind of stage. But yeah, I think that that's good analysis. I do want to shout out somebody who had a really terrible take over the weekend about Caleb Plant. And they were like, basically every, yeah, Caleb Plant has a sad story, but so does everyone else. And it's like, um, yeah, that was one you probably should have left in the drafts. Cause, yeah. uh, yeah, I mean, listen, I, this there is no currency in trying to compare people's trauma at all. That's not uh, not a game I'm going to play. And like, for how many decades has boxing been around? Uh, sorry, not obviously has been around for like century, but um, but like for how long have we used these human element stories across all of sports to build the connection between the audience and the fighter or the, the athlete and to use that to like generate care 
come on now. This is what the game is. Why are we acting like the game is anything but make hitting you in the feels? Have you not watched the Olympics? Everyone's got a story to tell. Yeah, it, exactly. Yeah, and that's it's not a surprise. Also, boxing and boxing's interesting in a lot of ways, right? Like boxing, you could and, and we've kind of touched on it just even you know, in the hour or so we're talking about this fight, we talked about the really kind of nerdy tactical things and that minutia of boxing that a lot of people don't see when they think it's just kind of two brutes, you know, trying to hammer one another in, in, into submission. There's so much nuance there. But it, one of the, the wonderful things about boxing is how open and accessible the athletes are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's you, you should appreciate that. You know, that's one of the wonderful things about boxing. If you're just saying, ah, I don't, I don't want to hear these personal stories. I don't want to hear these like kumbaya things. I don't know. I, I feel like you're missing out. You know, I, I feel like you're missing out on one of the special things about this. And that's not to say that like people's trauma is special, but the fact that people are willing to share it and work through it in the ring it can be very beautiful in, in in boxing, and to just wholly reject that and not want to hear any of it, I don't know. Uh, that's the that's not the kind of uh, curiosity that that uh, that I bring into boxing, or you know, that's that's not probably not someone I want to talk about boxing with. I'll put it that way. Well, let's just give them. I, I like to give everybody the benefit of the doubt, okay? And let's just give them the benefit of the doubt that maybe they had to sit through like eight straight Mark Kriegel segments. <laughs> I don't know if he's one of your friends or not, so uh, sorry if he is. Sorry to you, Mark Rigo, but I don't care for your pieces. Fair enough, you know. Listen, uh, Mark. Mark tells a hell of a story about fathers and sons, though, man. You gotta, you gotta give him that. I don't have a father. Then we will, we'll move right along to the next. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, so some of your colleagues have been on the timeline and on social media campaigning on behalf of i would say a promoter for a particular fight um in in a very egregious sort of uh way but i'll ask you um what do you want to see next for canelo i've always wanted to see him against jamal charlo like that's the 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 fight that I think from a tactical standpoint has always interested me the most. Uh, and when I say always, I think for the last like two years or so, I have felt that that would be the most interesting fight for me as, as a viewer, tactically, probably the most challenging, maybe stylistically for Canelo would be, would be Charlo. Maybe number two would be better BF just to see if he can kind of knock off the, you know, the lineal champion at 175. Um, and those would be number one and number two for me. I assume you're alluding to people who want to see Canelo triple G three, which to me right now is, would probably not turn out to be that competitive and probably just gives us a very conclusive ending um, to a, a trilogy, but one that probably and you know, not to, not to say it's like unfair, but it's sort of an unfair ending in that I think the Triple G has aged while Canelo has really ascended beyond mm-hmm. even where he was during those first two fights, and I would would probably predict that he would stop Triple G in that fight. So I'm not as interested in that fight as, as the, the other two that I just mentioned. Well, I agree with you there. Um, I feel like when we talk about earlier, 
the fascination with wanting to see a fighter lose. It's the people who thought Golovkin won those fights that want to see a third fight. And I, I truly believe that Gennady Golovkin would be stopped within six rounds by Canelo. If you factor in the guy's age, and this is somebody who I, I've enjoyed the career of Gennady Golovkin. I think all of us have. He's given us a lot of fun fights. We've gotten some devastating knockouts from this guy. But like you look at, I mean, just look at that says meta fight. Look at how he performed against Derevianchenko. We're seeing a guy that the legs aren't there anymore. His defensive reflexes have never been great. And age will take a little bit away there. Uh, the power didn't seem to be fully there like it used to be. I mean, a guy like Shazmeta was a two-round fight, what, four years ago. That ain't the case anymore. A lot of time has passed. There's been a long layoff. And Canelo has really, I mean, you undersold it when you said ascended, but he truly has ascended, I think, as like the guy in boxing at the moment. And this is his era. I don't think so. Um and I don't. I just don't want to see that ending. I, I if it, I can see the writing on the wall now, and I think I'm okay with it. I think I'd rather remember their two fights as being some of the most high skill fights that we had seen in their respective years, and maybe even of the past like uh, decade or so. But, or is there anything you want to say there? Or yeah, well, I mean, I, I like I'm not that interested in the ending, but I can see how. Because most people aren't as invested in this as, as we are. And by invested, I mean, you know, in the mix every day, following boxing yeah. all the time, you know, watching Shamo boxing broadcasts from uh, from Russia. No, on, only on, one of on, us did that. On, on dodgy streams, <laughs> you know, not not all of us are in the in the Tim Boxeo discord. <laughs> so there's there are a lot of people out there who don't know that Triple G has, you know, maybe slipped faded a little bit in, in the way that we can see because we're paying attention in that way. And if they heard Canelo triple G three would probably be more excited than they would be about the two fights that, that you know, maybe you and I would prefer be a Charlo or better be or or uh, maybe your dream of Canelo fighting at cruiserweight. People would be more excited about that triple G fight. I, I like, I, I understand, how, you know, that idea that the, the more casual fan Triple G is more, he's more well-known, maybe, than, than I mean, definitely, I, I think, than the other two. You could make an argument with, with Charlo, but I, I, I can understand why from a purely, like, capitalistic, like, how many viewers can we possibly get, I could see why one would argue that a, a third Triple G fight would be bigger, but it's certainly not a better fight by any means well i don't even think it's arguably bigger i think if you look at certain factors involved you could see that maybe that is a gamble when was the last time casual fans saw golovkin fight right but that but that's part of the point right like i think that his 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 name and his reputation his name and his reputation probably exceed his recent performances so yeah, but very few people watched him fight Camille Sharameta, but they know that he won, and they probably just saw the the highlight of the, of the you know the final knockdown. And so like I think that his like he's almost been sort of sheltered on DAZN the last two times, but there are enough people who who didn't watch enough of that to know how far that he slipped. So it's a, it's a little bit of a like it's a it's a bit of a con. Right. It, it's sort of that like we talk about, you know, why the fan base, the boxing fan base always believes that it's being deceived. 
That's because sometimes it is. Mm -hmm. And I think this would be one of those cases uh, that that you would be, you know, the 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 casual fan base would be deceived into thinking this is still a competitive fight. And I don't think it is anymore. All right. Now, you mentioned Jamal Charlo. I I think if we look at the available opponents for Canelo, Benavides, Better BF, Bivol, um, David Morrell. If we look at all these guys out here, I think Jamal Charlo has the most interesting case for being in a competitive fight with Canelo. Um, I think he does the one thing that would be a little troublesome for Canelo. I think most of these guys, Canelo could just, you know, beat him with his feet, beat him with their head, with his head movement. Uh, but what Jamal Charlo brings is potentially possibly the best jab in boxing. And we saw Caleb Plant have tremendous success with the jab. And we saw Gennady Golovkin have a lot of success against Canelo with the jab. I think, that opens up a lot of questions for the way that fight plays out. I think if I speak on behalf of like, well, what do I think is going to be the most entertaining fight? And that's the one I want. It's clearly David Benavides. I mean, getting Canelo in there with somebody who's going to walk forward, who's big, who we believe can take a lot of punches and is going to give them out. That's David Benavides. And now we have the question of like, okay, Canelo's fought guys who have size on him, but no one's tried to use it. We now have a guy who's going to try to use their size on him. Now what happens? Right. Yeah. Well, and that's what I'm saying. Like I, I like like I said earlier, I think from a tactical standpoint, I've always thought that Jamal is the most interesting fight of, of the possible fights for Canelo. And yeah, I think the jab is a big reason. Also, Jamal's ability to. Uh, disguise his hooks and his uppercuts with that left hand because of the quality of his jab. When he could hook off the jab, and sometimes he'll throw, you know, that little like scoop uppercut that uh, we've seen him knock guys out with. Like that, that's a dangerous shot. And that, like, we talk about the the suspense that we felt in the plant fight. Well, I think you'd feel that with Jamal in there for as long as he was in there because he has those really explosive one punch tools. And a jab that has a little more authority than the one that Plant was throwing, but he Let's could throw not it as often. Things. Yeah, well, you know, a lot more authority <laughs> than Plant, and can throw it as often as Caleb does. So, yeah, I, I think that I, I totally agree with that. I think if you're just looking for pure unadulterated action, it's probably Benavidez who, who's the most interesting. Um, better Bev, maybe stakes wise presents you know the most interesting like the most compelling storyline maybe but for me tactically i think that jamal is the most interesting fight for for me as kind of you know the the nerdy boxing fan i think jamal would be my preference of of next opponent and there's no concern for you that jamal charlo would have to move up and wait uh well of course that's that's a little bit uh, of a concern but what choice does he have you know he's not he's not He's not in a position of leverage against Canelo. Nobody is. So, yeah, I think that he would have to move up to, to 168 and, and just take his chance. But he has a big enough frame that I think he fills it out relatively well. Um, Canelo's had more time to live at that weight and walk around at it. But it's not like Jamal's like a small middleweight or anything like that. So I think he could carry the frame well. He's at a little bit of a disadvantage because he hasn't been there quite as long. But – it's, if he wants to fight Canelo, he, I think he's going to have to move up. That's just the way it is. Yeah, I I am not that concerned because um, 
I think Jamal is a guy that is a big guy generally, and it takes quite an effort for him to get down to 160. Yes. Uh, I would not be shocked if Jamal Charlo under truth serum would tell, would, wouldn't tell us that he struggled to make weight in his last fight. I, I think he did. And that explains, you know, he didn't have the performance that I think everyone expected in that fight. And I think that there, that was probably one of the issues going into that fight. We've seen also just, we've seen with Canelo that moving up in weight makes, has made him better. You know, the, yeah, well, well, and, and remember, like Jamal, like, I, I forget which fight it was. Bef- it was after, but he sort of walked into the press room and he said, "Like I'm, I'm never making 154 again." <laughs> you know, and so if he was dying to make 154, I can only assume he's not having like a joyous time making 160, and he probably walks around, you know, 180 plus. So 168 isn't that much, you know. It at some point in his career, he's going to fight at 168. Why not make it for the biggest fight in boxing? Um, I would recommend anybody go look up the weigh-in photos from Jamal versus Julian Williams. It is amazing that that guy was making 154. Like, if you look at him, he just does not look like the same guy anymore. I don't know how he was doing it. And I don't, I don't know how Jamel has a smaller frame than him because Jamel it doesn't have trouble making 154. Yeah, that that's true. Yeah, I've never heard the same kind of like weight issues uh, with Jamel, but yeah, I, I I don't know. I I this is the fight that I that I want to see for for a variety of yeah. I think he fills out the frame just fine, and and who knows? Maybe carries a little bit more power up there. You know, if he's if he's spending a camp, kind of like putting on a little bit of muscle mass, or just not depleting quite as much, maybe it increases his power too. You know, we're you know we're we're convincing our we're we're convincing ourselves that this would be a competitive and interesting fight. And I think that there are good reasons to believe that that could be the case. Well, the one question is, does Jamal slap Canelo at any point in the lead up to the fight? (laughs) Well, (laughs) all signs point to this being a very big and lucrative event with the gate of about $18 million or more. And the pay-per-views are, you know, when you do an $18 million gate, we're looking at a lot of pay-per-view buys um, I'm imagining that they're going to be my, my prediction before the fight was 750 and some people thought I was crazy. I imagine that I'm going to be right. Um, I mean, how much did the slap work? Oh, I, I'm sure it worked a lot. You know, I, I, one thing that's, I mean, this is uh, here's some like inside baseball stuff. One thing that was frustrating, uh, as I am a Canadian who lives in Canada mm-hmm. is there was not a legal streaming option to purchase this fight. If you were in Canada, there was no way for you to digitally purchase this fight, which is very frustrating for the Canadian audience. That doesn't factor into what these numbers are, but it's something I want to, to point out that unless you had like genuine cable uh, and, and, you know, Bell or, or Shaw or Rogers or the, the Canadian providers, there was no way to order this fight on your computer. So that uh, they did leave some money on the table internationally, which I, I found very strange, either a an odd oversight uh, or a missed opportunity for people who could have purchased the rights to this uh, on like a digital platform just wasn't available for Canadian fans. Um, so do you have Sling TV in Canada? We do have Sling TV in Canada, I believe. Yeah, I think you can order pay-per-view events through Sling. Right. So but if- I, 
Yeah. I if wonder if they're looking. like geo-blocked in some way in, in Canada. I wasn't, I'm, I'm not sure. Well, you know, but, we, you and I will have to discuss this afterward, but we may be able to get rich. Maybe. Oh, oh, I thought you were asking me to snitch on myself here. I'm not going <laughs> to. Let, 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 let me DM Javon right now and tell uh, Corey stole the pay-per-view. It's, <laughs> uh, I'm going to DM my wife right now and uh, and <laughs> set up my defense. Uh, all right. I, I, so I think we're in agreement. Jamal Charlo is who we want to see next for Canelo. Um, I think for Caleb Plant, tune-up is in order. And then we'll go from there. Let's talk a little bit about the undercar before we get out of here. Anthony Durrell, knockout win over um, Vladimir Hernandez. Wait, it was Vladimir, right? It wasn't Marcos. It was Marcos Hernandez, right? I don't know. I keep mixing them up all week. We're both typing to make sure that we got it right. But Anthony Durrell scored a knockout. 37-year-old Anthony Durrell knocked out Marcos Hernandez in the fourth round. Um, were you impressed with this? I, I, it, I think it's been a long time since we've seen an Anthony Durrell who was putting his foot on the gas. Yeah. And this is great. And, and this goes back to, to what we're talking about, you know, with kind of rehabilitating fight. And you had me second guessing myself. Of course it's Marcos Hernandez. Yes, it was Marcos Hernandez. Um, yeah, that, like the, the idea that fighters aren't just toast because they lost in, in a, in a title fight or had kind of a, a lousy outing, um, you know, now because PBC gave Darrell the opportunity to kind of bounce back and put him on this platform, suddenly he becomes an interesting fight for maybe Caleb Lant or, or, or maybe one of the other guys at, at super middleweight that, you know, just because he lost to David Benavidez doesn't mean that Anthony Darrell is, is useless as a fighter or that there aren't compelling fights out there for him. Now, you know, is Marcos Hernandez like a, a top 168 pounder? Of course not. But I think that by just giving Durrell the space to rehabilitate and and maybe improve some things, you know, you've extended his career a little bit. And I think there are a lot of people that wouldn't have allowed that for for Anthony Durrell. But it's a highlight reel knockout, a beautiful uppercut shot. Um, and sure, I mean, I'm happy to watch Anthony Durrell versus whoever. Fun fact, because I'm not on Facebook very often, uh, my Facebook profile photo is still, like, me and Anthony Durrell uh, on, like, when we worked on a PBC show together. It's just, you know, I found myself to, to look pretty handsome in that photo. And so Anthony Durrell is still in my Facebook profile photo. So shout out to the dog. So we were never getting anything less than a compliment here from one Corey Erdman. Exactly. He's got Anthony Durrell. I mean... Man, the amount of pictures you probably have with fighters, you you could switch literally every week to whoever just recently won, I'd imagine. Um, Not that many. Plus, I was one of the rare, I was one of the few people to watch him versus Dante Craig at a high school football stadium in Flint, Michigan. Uh, if you could find the video of that, uh, just a, a truly extraordinary local scene in uh, in Flint. Uh, 2011 uh, with Jonathan right. Banks on the, I'm imagining he was the main event. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and somewhere in like the 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 annals of the internet, somewhere my buddy Morgan Campbell has like a great frame by frame recap uh, of this of this event at a high school football stadium in Flint, and I, I have fond memories of that day. The God Jay Leon Love was on the undercard. Wow, against Guy Packer. Oh yeah, interesting Cla- name. Guy Packer, classic uh, Michigan opponent. Guy Packer. If you watched any Michigan club fights. Uh, the pride of Battle Creek, Michigan. 
uh, along with Rob Van Dam. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's Rob Van Dam's first mention ever on this podcast, 400 episodes in. Yeah, Mr. Monday Night. Uh, the whole effing show. Wow. Um, I, I would say that I've always like had a love-hate relationship with Anthony Durrell. One, Durrell's a really nice guy. I've met him. I, I get why like everyone likes him. He's just a super nice guy. Uh, two, I've always felt that he fought unnecessarily defensive. And his fights tended to be ugly. They tended to not be too entertaining. The Kyron Davis fight really put that on display. Um, I, I thought he boxed really well at times in the the Benavides fight, but ultimately that cut really just blew the doors open on that fight being anything other than a stoppage. Um, but this guy putting his foot on the pedal, I mean, I, I don't know how you feel, but Anthony Durrell is one of the few fighters that when I met them, I was like, wow, how do you fight at 168? You are a monster. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He just uh, like built like a brick house, and yeah, so he's a, he's a very big guy. Yeah, and and I, uh, it's funny. Like both Durrells are, are just naturally super super talented. I, I remember, like I thought that Andre was gonna win the Super Six. I remember seeing you uh, like yeah, I like I remember seeing Andre Durrell in the gym and thinking like fuck like like this guy has like a, a combination of, of skill and athleticism that I haven't seen before. And like, he, he turned out to have a fine career, but when I saw him in the gym, I thought like, this is a generational talent. Like, mm-hmm. and, and both him and Anthony have a lot of, a, a lot of natural skill. And yeah, to your point, it's, you know, it's, it's never fully, fully come together for Anthony, but when it, when it does, and when you see those flashes, you can see why, you know he he could be and and it, in in all likelihood it's too late for him at 37 right. to kind of you know win another title at 168 but i'm not like uh disturbed at the idea of of watching him try because yeah he he can kind of pull out those moments where you start to believe a little bit so the at this point, he's basically like that story, like the the age veteran. Can he do it one more time? Like we're running that angle here for Anthony Durrell. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how it goes, to, whether he gets a shot at. Um, I mean, anyone from Canelo all the way down to David Morrell, we shall see. Um, and then prior to that, we had the return of Ray Vargas against Leonardo Baez and what was... Um, I guess an action fight that was super one-sided, I guess is the best way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I I think Vargas has this reputation as this like, you know, really boring fighter. Like when on the timeline, everyone's kind of, you know, rolling their eyes at Ray Vargas, but I don't know. Like he's, 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 at least in this fight, he was fun to watch. Like he's, he's, aesthetically interesting because it looks like at least in this fight it looks like he's throwing everything at 100 percent, and he's got these long arms and he's throwing everything like big sweeping big combinations that look like you know he's putting everything on them that they could all be fight enders and they weren't he's just winning rounds but i don't know like i wasn't i wasn't bored to tears watching this fight at all i i, I actually was was kind of entertained by it 
Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I actually felt like Ray Vargas was putting more on his punches than we've ever seen him put on before. And I think that may have something to do with the fact that he's moved up in weight. He's at 126 now. Uh, It could have something to do with Baez was just open enough that he saw the opportunity to land those shots. I don't know what it was, but I did think we saw a better to watch version of Ray Vargas than we've seen in the past. And that's good because like he's obviously a talented fighter. But the worst thing is to be a talented fighter that nobody wants to see. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, because it's not, you know, the last time when he fought Tomoki Kameda, like it wasn't extraordinarily exciting. That was kind of, you know, everyone thinks that by virtue of fighting at Dignity Health, it's going to be a banger every time. That was kind of the the one exception um, of, a, of a main event. But I, I, yeah, I, I mean, and that division is sort of wide open. Like Kid Galahad has has a title, right? Like... Ray Vargas, uh, you know, may still be, you know, he could turn out to be the the the, uh, the cream of the crop of this division. Who knows? But and and hopefully he did enough in that fight to to give him an opportunity to at least try to find out, right? Because some guys do get frozen out by virtue of just not being exciting enough. But hopefully he did enough to to get him a shot at like you know Galahad or, or a Navarrete or who knows. Amazingly. Um... Didn't seem to ever work for Guillermo Rigondeau. That dude just kept getting shots. Keeps getting shots, actually. Keeps, keeps getting shots, yeah. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I like watching Rigo. <laughs> I, I, I don't care. <laughs> I, I I don't mind watching Rigo at all. Uh, no, I, I don't either, but like public sentiment, you know. Yes. A- and we kind of mentioned this earlier, but um, Elvis Rodriguez, he got a knockout over Juan Pablo Romero in a what was turning out to be a pretty interesting fight. And then Rodriguez caught him and the fight turned on a dime. Did you like what you saw from Elvis Rodriguez in this fight? Yeah. I I thought that he came out and behaved like a fighter who knew he needed to change the public's opinion. And Mm -hmm. fighters do not have to do that at all. Like you don't have to, you know, you don't owe me anything. But he went out like, and and he was fighting from the opening bell, like he was looking for the knockout, and he and he, and he found it. Um, you know, he, he knocks Romero down to the fourth, and then finishes it in the, in the fifth. Um, yeah, I, to me that felt like a like a statement win, like like someone who went out with the intention of scoring a knockout and then got it. Um, and I think I I feel like, I mean, at at eleven and one, like he's not really a. a you can't put him back on Showbox, for example. Right. But I think you can make a lot of kind of a lot of interesting fights, and and Showtime is the kind of platform where I think they'll give him the space to do that. You know, they have these like three and four fight undercards, um, and I, I I'm I'm excited to see him again, especially after that. So <clears throat> he fought like a guy who just got cut, and needed yeah. to come out here and say you guys made a big mistake. And one of the things that I will say is. I liked that it looked like a flip switch in the fight where he made a tactical adjustment that wound up leading to the knockout. I believe it was in the fourth round where he started to switch things up. Maybe maybe it was in the third. I don't know what they told him in the corner, but he came out, started to do things a little differently. The knockout came. That's good corner work by Freddie Roach and Marvin Simodio, I think. You know, could have been that he did it himself. I don't know. But I, I do like the adjustment that was made there. Um... Do you want to talk a little bit about the... Did you watch the Michaela Mayer fight? Uh, so that was the... <laughs> I 
I still have to go back and watch it uh, because that was also the day that uh, my wife broke her ankle. So I was uh, in the hospital at that time. So, no. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. spoke. Um, okay. I just wanted to – I what I wanted to say about that, and this is something that I've said in the past, but like sometimes we don't need to be outraged over everything. The scorecards weren't terrible, but they also weren't great. But they got it right. So like – you argue they were I, I feel like people were arguing for this moral victory that Michaela Mayer should have won by closer cards. Um and like realistically, I, I don't have any I didn't really have the biggest issue with the cards because the the result wasn't gonna change. Um maybe they should have reflected a more competitive fight, maybe, but at the at the end of the day, like, you know, they got it right. So we, we gotta give them their credit where it's due because they don't always deserve credit. There, there, there are also times when they get it wrong. Uh, anything you want to say about that? Yeah, well, I mean, and, and I could see where you're coming from, where, I mean, especially in boxing, I think that we have, um, we have outrage fatigue sometimes, right? Where, you know, our glass starts to, to our, our glass starts to, to overflow a little bit. And, you know, you know, in in your case, you know, you looked at the situation and you see, all right, well, the the result is what it ought to have been, and and that's good enough. And and I I totally understand kind of coming to that conclusion. I would say that you know, it's it happened to be right this time. And again, I haven't gone back and and watched the fight. I'm I'm going to probably tonight. But it let's say it, it was a a closer fight than it was, and those rounds were wrong then it would have resulted in an incorrect decision. So, I mean, I don't think it's ever a bad thing to ask for accuracy from judges. But yeah, I mean, uh, of course, like if you're picking and choosing what to be angry about in boxing, there's a, there's a lot of things and there are a lot of worse decisions. So I can understand why you would have, uh, you know, some outrage or, or empathy fatigue and, <laughs> and choose to uh, to use use your energy in other places. Uh, like the WBA. You know, you could you sure, could yeah, maybe start right, there yeah. and, and not do what some people have done where they've talked about the WBA, but the moment their friend gets a job there, they've changed their tune. Are, are we talking about uh, are we talking about Gary Shaw, who's cleaning up boxing? Uh, Gary Shaw, a man who's taken bribes in the past and has a track record of racism. That guy? Yeah, I'm talking about him. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. This weekend coming up, we have Jaime Munguia versus Gabriel Rosado. I, I have one question for you about this. By the way, Golden Boy, who's on the card this weekend? You've put nothing on BoxRec. Um, Jaime Maguia versus Gabriel Rosado. I see people saying that this is going to be a fire matchup and really entertaining and all this stuff. Where do you sit on that question? I do think it's going to be an entertaining fight. The question is, you know, is is this is this the right fight for... Rosado to be in where he can pull this kind of upset, you know, like uh, I think obviously he scored a, a spectacular knockout over Beck the Bully last time, and he deserves to get this kind of opportunity. But Rosado still has a lot of a lot of miles on those tires, and Mungia is is kind of a force of nature, right? He has that that youthful exuberance. And, and power and physicality that, you know, as, as slick and crafty as Rosado is, this is the kind of guy that 
can can break him down. And so it could turn out that it's very exciting, but it's maybe not competitive in, in the way that we think. I think that if you want to believe that Rosado is going to be competitive in this, you would think you would point to Munguia being still, uh, you know, a, 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 you know, a somewhat unpolished product, right? There are holes in Munguia's game. You, you can hit him. He's not, you know, a, a great boxer. He's not a great defensive fighter, but what he is, is when he wants to be, he could be completely overwhelming, especially that those like early versions of Munguia when he just went nuts. Uh, that was a lot of fun to watch. And, and we saw kind of flashes of that again, against Sharameta last time out. And, and, if, and if we get that version of Munguia, um, unless Rosado catches him with that fight-ending shot, like, is he able to, to, to poke and, and, and shift and turn and, and keep Munguia off of him? Or, you know, is he weathered enough that Munguia can just break him down? And, like, I, it's, I, I, it, I could see this going the other way. And, and clearly Golden Boy thinks that it's going the other way. Yeah. Where they kind of have this perfect situation where Rosado scores um, a one-punch knockout in a fight that he was supposed to lose. And now they put him in against a guy who ought to beat him. But the public, the, the last memory of Rosado is this knockout. So they think that it, it, it's a great fight. Like this is good matchmaking for if, if you're thinking yeah. for for what a promoter is supposed to do. Yep. This is good matchmaking. But the likely result, I think, is that Munguia overwhelms him. And it would be cool if I'm wrong. It'd be it'd be a feel good story if Rosado does it again. But it's not supposed to work that way. No, I think you know what we were talking about earlier about like fans being in this constant state of wondering if they're being sold something. And this is the fight where it's like you're being sold something here. Now, the the one thing is like, well, I don't have a problem if I'm being sold something if excitement is what I'm going to get as like, you know, kind of one of the results of it. And I think that there is potential that this fight is going to be exciting, but that relies solely on Munguia. Um, I've never seen Rosado in a fight be the guy that makes it interesting or sorry, not interesting, but exciting. He's just not that guy. He is a very adaptable guy who adjusts to what is in front of him. And we've seen him in the ring with everyone basically. And like the fight always plays out how the other guy fights. Uh, and that's led to a lot of really uninteresting fights for Gabriel Rosado. I mean, what do you remember of Martin Murray and Willie Monroe? those two opponents for Gabe Rosado because right. those were not pretty to watch. Neither was the Arias fight. The Selecki fight was not interesting either. Um, the, the, that's, But that's not who Jaime Munguia is. You know, people expect... And then the, one of the other ways that this fight could play out is people think like, oh, you know, Munguia is just not a very good defensive fighter, so therefore Gabe Rosado could catch him. I don't know. Like, Rosado has never been known for knockout power uh, prior to the Melikuziev knockout that he just recently scored, if we take out somebody who just cannot take punches, um, the last time he got a stoppage was in 2012. And if you're wondering, well, who's the guy who couldn't take punches? That'd be Glenn Tapia, who had lost three fights in a row. Right, yeah. It, it, and that's like, you know, in all likelihood... And not in all likelihood, it probably it, it it is like that knockout last time out. That, that's that's an anomaly with Rosado, right? That's a perfectly timed shot um, that you know he may never land again in his life. You know that's that's about as good of a shot as he could possibly land. It's a knockout of the year contender. Some fighters um, land one of those shots their entire career. I think most fighters do. 
Right, and one thing we know about Munguia is that he can take shots because mm-hmm. we've seen him take a lot of them because that's that's part of his style is that he does take shots like that and, and from guys that could punch as hard as Rosado or harder uh, and he's always walked through them. So, um, yeah, it's like is there it, is there a world in which Rosado like – outboxes a kind of like clumsy Munguia I you know that's what Rosado's probably banking on and that's what his supporters would would think but I think that if Munguia does sell out and just wants to use pure physicality there was a period of time when he was he was kind of between trainers and it was between him getting with Eric Morales and those first couple fights where I think they were trying to force these like defensive tactics on him and he was almost like willing himself to be a boxer at times and then at a certain point would just say ah fuck it and then just be himself if he just says ah fuck it from the (laughs) from the opening bell i think this he can stop risotto probably um but if he is kind of unsure of himself then i think that there are rounds where Rosado can do just enough to win. That's sort of what he specializes in is taking exactly what he's given. And so if Munguia does give him space, yeah, maybe he does make this a little bit interesting. But uh, yeah, to your point, I think this is all up to Munguia and how he decides to fight. If Rosado wins this fight, he's fighter of the year. Thoughts? Wow, fighter of the year over Canelo? Why not? I mean... (laughs) (laughs) He'll have wins over... The, the combined record of his opponents this year will have been 44-0. That, yeah, that, that's true. Yeah, I mean... Uh, I'm half no, joking, he, guys. Okay, yeah, relax. Yeah, yeah, I mean, can you put him on, like, the short list? Sure. Yeah, why not? That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great accomplishment. You know, is he one of the... if he, With two wins, would he be, you know, one of the, you know, five, six? Yeah, sure. You could put him on the ballot. He He's not going to win, but yeah be like the honorable mention like feel good story of the year uh one question for you fernando barbosa from florida is that who i think it is barbosa box on twitter i think it is he scored the jacobs fight uh the rosado jacobs fight is he actually a judge yes he is a judge yes yeah he he had danny jacobs winning that fight seven five but I also think is he I think is the programmer for like ESPN Knockout also, like 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 ESPN Spanish language ESPN. I'm pretty sure he is the programmer for that also. He has a lot of roles in boxing. I am not a fan of his because of his tendency to spread misinformation on Twitter. But I gotta respect this hustle. He's judging fights, reporting, doing work for ESPN. Book. He's got the book. My there God, are, there are no rules in boxing, brother. None. You can do anything. Jeez. Um, all right. And then over in Arizona, David Benavidez will face Kyron Davis. Originally, this was supposed to be Jose Uzcategui, but um, Uzcategui was found to have been using EPO. So they got him out of there and put Kyron Davis is the fill in. So now we got Kyron Davis on the card. Yeah, which um, is a pretty good short notice uh, replacement, honestly. You know, he, he's not, he's probably not going to win, but as far as late replacements go, I mean, that's pretty good. I, I think it's a better fight. I don't think Uzkategi yeah. has anything left. I could be wrong. Maybe the EPO was going to help him out, but or will help him out, you know, whatever he goes on to do from here. But 
I don't think Uzkategi was going to provide as much like the same type of challenge. I think Kyron Davis is going to be able to push David Benavides in directions that we want to see him pushed. Whereas Uzkategi was going to walk forward and get punched in the face probably. Yeah. Well, and there's like, again, it goes back to, you know, what we've been talking about. Like once you've seen someone lose at the higher levels, that intrigue is just gone. And even though Kyron Davis, like, you know, has the draw with, uh, with Darrell and, uh, who did Kyron Davis uh, lose to as well? He has uh, Patrick Day and Junior. Castillo. Oh yeah, 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 Patrick Day, of course, yeah. So, but those are like far enough back that there's some kind of intrigue here. Uh, like, you know, maybe there's a higher upside for uh, for Kyron Davis. Yeah, I, I wouldn't argue with this being a potentially uh, better fight. Although, uh, you know, a blood doping Uskategi might have been a, an absolute monster. Who knows? All right, but we should not be advocating for like, oh, if you're the B side and you're also a big underdog therefore you should be allowed to use uh epo and other performance enhancing drugs i don't know that that's the, the stance we want to take here i'm i'm okay with it if you if you want to double down <laughs> yeah well I, what i'm saying is that you know if if uskategi was gassed up and, and happened to beat this the, the 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 drug test uh he could have been a real factor in this fight um yeah, um, I'm not going to argue for that, but I'm also not going to argue against it because you do raise a good point. I mean, obviously, if uh, this dude could have got out here, uh, yeah, okay. Speaking of 168, do do we know what ever happened to um, Vladimir Shishkin? So there's isn't there a, a purse bid going on, right? Like, no, nah, uh, because I, I know you know people. I do know people. Um, aren't you f- f- friendly with Dimitri Salida? I am. So I've called some Shishkin fights in the past. Um, yeah, because he, he was he was a part. He was in like an IBF purse bid. Um, oh, you're right. Except this was in June with, with Evgeny Spadenko, and they won I don't the know bid. what happened. To that. Yeah. So uh, I don't know when I get off when I get off of here, maybe I'll I'll give Dimitri a call. I'll, I'll give give you some answers. Nice. You see, guys, we're out here putting in work. That's right. Yeah. This is podcast and meeting where we are out here to uncover the answers that we all have questions to. And uh, so yeah, I I think uh, so. David Benavides impresses here. Do you think that increases his chances of getting the Canelo fight? in may yeah of course yeah i mean i mean canelo has a a as we've been talking about a diminishing list of reasonable and possible opponents and we both agree that benavides is probably the most interesting or, or the best action fight for canelo of course that improves the chances yeah i mean it's especially you know another and and benavides one of the cool things about him is that when he can, he can score some really eye-catching stoppages. Um, you know, like that combination he landed on on Porky Medina gets shared all the time. <laughs> where he lands like you know 175 punches, and, and then drops him. I mean, he's capable of those those kind of and and that counts when selling fights, right? If you could put together a compelling little sizzle reel of a guy and his stoppages, like that that goes somewhere. And and Benavidez can have a nice little highlight package. So, uh, of course, that'll help him. Absolutely. Um, on the undercard, Jose Benavidez makes his long-awaited return to the ring. Uh, 
do you recall why Jose Benavides has been out of the ring for so long? Uh, I do not, no. Oh, all right. Well, um, when last seen in the ring, uh, <laughs> Jose Benavides went 12 rounds. Uh, I'll tell you a little story about this. So I have a family member who's a casual boxing fan. Loves Canelo, obviously. Um, but a casual boxing fan that maybe has a slight um, bias towards fighters of a particular ethnicity. And uh, so that was the first time he had ever seen Terrence Crawford fight. He asked me, like, you know, Terrence Crawford's fighting tonight. Uh, and, and he'd always, like, proclaim, you know, when I'd bring up Crawford as, like, a welterweight guy. He was always just like, yeah, okay. So um, he watches that fight. His first exposure to Terrence Crawford was the Jose Benavides fight. Text me after, says, not that impressed with this guy. I think Mikey Garcia would beat him. Okay, well, uh, I, I thought uh, Mikey Garcia would beat Sandor Martin also. <laughs> All right, well, you know, we, yeah, we, you didn't need to go there. That was just a low blow. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, the point is, and I think he was f- fair to make the assessment that Terrence Crawford didn't have his best performance against Jose Benavidez, looked no. flat for most of that fight. And I don't know if that was because um, Terrence Crawford was... Or, or sorry, Jose Benavides was just moving way too much in the ring that night or whatever. But uh, also, was this before or after Jose Benavides had gotten shot? I think it was before. It was after. Yeah, I think it was after. Yeah. Uh, and, and since then, you know, Jose Benavides has probably spent, you know, earned a well. I mean, he got knocked out pretty bad in that fight, but he earned this time off. I think he's had a couple of out of the ring issues that he's now gotten squared away, and now he's back. Uh, are you familiar at all with Francisco Torres? Uh, let me see. Have I seen? I'm sure I've seen Francisco Torres fight before. You ever watch um, him? You ever you ever see him in, at the Ocean Center in Daytona Beach? Yeah, against Cleotas Pendarvis. Yes, yes, I have. But it, I have, <laughs> I've uh, these like uh, these TYC sports streams. I have definitely seen him uh, fight on the, but I have no like genuine like opinion on his. I can't. I couldn't tell you, uh, you know, what he fights like or anything like that. I I, I don't remember. He kind of <laughs> looks not remember like Francisco Torres. He kind of looks like an Argentinian Scott Quigg. Yeah, he's one of those guys. You like you know, in like fighters in the seventies would be like twenty five and they had pattern baldness already. Like he's <laughs> he's one of those guys. Well, he's 32, and he's he's. It looks like he's had it since he was 25. Yeah, it's 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 time for Francisco to to bring it back home, as uh, as Bomani would say. <laughs> Although Bomani let it grow out, uh, it doesn't look bad at all. Um, no, he yeah, he, <laughs> he didn't have to give up. He Bomani pulled the plug a little too early. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you this question though. Uh, on Boxrec, Francisco Torres's last fight was a nine rounder. Do you have any ex- explanation for that? Yeah, so in Argentina and Colombia, there there are two of the, uh, I think the only places on Earth that have like odd numbered rounds for fight. Like you'll see nine rounders and eleven rounders, and they're usually in like regional WBA title fights as well. Oh, the WBA, uh, right? But I have no further insight into why that is like the, the Argentinian commission also uh, pretty much won't let you box after 40. Like, I think you have to like reapply for your license after 40. They make it very difficult for you to, to fight after the age of 42. Um, but yeah, I, it, I think those are the two places that I've ever seen that have 
yeah, nine and, and 11 rounders in, in fights. Damn, no wonder why Sergio Martinez has based himself out there in Spain. Yeah, because it would be very t- difficult for him to, to fight in Argentina if they would even let him, and I'm not certain that they would. Uh, all right, well, we will wrap it up right here. Um, those are the fights this weekend. The uh, Munguia Rosado one will be on DAZN. Corey, do you have any affiliation with that card? Uh, not, I mean, I'm doing a little work behind the, the scenes on the 27th, but, uh, but no, like, you know, I can, I can still talk about it. I'm not, no, no, like, no, we, we've you know, not calling like into question here. your integrity yeah. here. Exactly. I would hope not. No, no, no. I, I mean, I wouldn't have you on if you, if you, if you weren't, you were going to come on here and be Chris Mannix. I listen, I, I just making sure you're not uh, accusing me of a, of being a, a, a writer of ill repute. <laughs> uh or never mind um no and then also the benavides and uh chiron davis card will be on showtime and i'm guessing that if you didn't watch the canelo fight uh last week they're gonna replay it on the card as well so or you just want to rewatch it they'll play it in beautiful hd and not one of these youtube 720p streams that you may get so those are the fights this weekend. I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. Corey, I want to thank you for coming on. Hey, had, anytime, man. Had a blast talking to you. We learned some things. Uh, and, um, you know, always good talking to you. I talk to you pretty frequently behind the scenes. I can vouch for you. You are certainly um, probably one of my favorite people that works in boxing. <laughs> well, that's uh, that's all the validation I need to, to keep going with my career. <laughs> All right, guys, I've done my good D for the day. Uh, we will, I'm, I'm guessing we will see a continuation of Corey as the lead writer on Monday, Monday mornings on Boxing Scene, which, by the way, you do really good work there. Um, on the botched intro, I'd said this and then didn't say it on the second time. But like one of the things that doesn't really exist that much anymore in boxing is people telling stories. Uh, there's there's some guys out there really trying still, but like for the most part, what's taken over is like the reporting of rumors and sources and innuendo and all that stuff, and the the recapping of who said what in YouTube interviews and really articles based off of a tweet. That's mostly what we get. Um, and you're one of the people that's still out here trying to tell stories, and I think you do a really good job at it. Um, you recently had a piece on Boxing Scene about the Caleb Plant and Canelo fight. That's right. Yeah, you can uh, you can go to boxingscene.com right now if you download this in the uh, the next uh, hour and twenty minutes, and you can still see it as a lead story, or you can just search for my name and and find all my past stories on there. But I appreciate that. I you know as as we've been talking about on this show, um, boxing provides such a, a wonderful creative outlet. I think for writers, and that's why when you uh, when you go back in history, so many of the literary giants have kind of dipped their toes in in the, the boxing waters because it it just provides such wonderful subjects uh, and the ability to really, um, you know, flex your storytelling muscles. And it's a shame that that more people don't do it. And, and I think it's not always for a, a lack of wanting to do it, but there are a diminishing number of roles in boxing where someone can actually be paid to do this type of thing uh, as compared to, to other sports where, you know, you can be a features writer about football or about baseball or about hockey or about soccer. 
um, boxing just doesn't have that many of those roles. So, um, you know, thank you to, to Boxing Seed for allowing me to write like this, too, because there aren't too many places where you can do it and actually get paid to do that. So if you're done killing the dreams, hopes and aspirations of some of our young listeners, uh, <laughs> for the rest of you guys, you could do something like start a Patreon or a Substack. Uh, but start an OnlyFans. <laughs> fuck doing this, man. It's not worth it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash Sunday puncher. We will, we have a couple more podcasts planned this week. That'll be over there, uh, with the other guys also gets you access to our exclusive chat with all the really just discussion of literally anything happening over the course of the day. So thank you guys so much for listening. Thanks to Corey. We'll be back next week.